In the Reading Corner today, I'm thrilled to be welcoming Patrice Lawrence. Now, many listeners will know Patrice from her what could be called gritty YA novels, uh, Orange Boy, which won the booksellers YA prize uh, and was shortlisted for the Costa, and Eight Pieces of Silver, which won the Jalek Prize in 2021. But today we're going to be talking about a book that's very different to that. It's a middle grade, I would say, historical fantasy adventure with a compelling mystery at its heart. And indeed, it is a very rich story. It's called The Elemental Detectives. And I'm really thrilled to be welcoming you to talk about this book today, Patrice. Thank you. It covers lots of bases. And uh, I suppose it would be nice to begin by asking you to describe that story in your words. Um, The original words I used to sort of pitch it to my agent were Benavonovich's Rivers of London meets the film Inception set in Georgian London with 12 year olds. So perhaps to lead us into our conversation, maybe just read a little bit from the prologue for us. So this is the very, very beginning and uh, the chapter is called A Rock Dove Falls. The rock dove fell from the sky on Sunday. Its slumbering body lay beneath a hedge, hidden from the carriages clattering by on their way to church. As the sun rose towards midday, a cat slunk past. She had failed to catch a single mouse in Mr Brobridge's grain store. She was too weak and clumsy. But here was food served up and waiting for her. She nudged the plump bird with her paw. His heart was beating. It was alive and fresh, even more tasty. The cat batted it again. It rocked sideways but didn't wake. Enough. She needed to eat now. She bent towards a bird and something was oozing from it. Something she couldn't see until it was inside her head. It was a yellow mist as thick as butter. All her thoughts of hunger disappeared. Instead, she remembered her mother and her brothers and her sisters. She had not seen them for so long. She closed her eyes and she was there again, curled up into a ball, her whiskers twitching against the comforting warmth of her mother's stomach. Her sister nipped her neck. It wasn't to hurt her, but just to remind her that she was here too. In a moment, they would peel away from safety and play. A human yelled. A horse snorted. The metal rooms of carriage wheels scraped against a stone close to her. Too close. Her eyes snapped open. She was not a kitten. She was old and alone and hungry. She leaped away from the bird. She was searched for food elsewhere. The rock dove slept on. So did many more. A rock dove, I guess, is a pigeon. It is. And it was, when I was writing, it was trying to think about all those ingredients that make London, London. So I said, like, Google, were there pigeons in the 18th century? Oh, they're called rock doves. Sounded so much more romantic. Wow. Why did we get rid of that? name I guess we think of pigeons as not being you know very attractive but rock dove sounds as you say a lot more romantic and in this prologue you set up for us what is the real problem in this story which is London is sick London has this dreaming sickness uh, that's taking over can I just ask when you decided to write the prologue and 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 start there with animals dreaming rather than the humans that come later 
I think like it took many drafts to to write the book, and I think as you said at the beginning, because it crossed so many genres: sort of adventure, detective, fantasy, historical. You know, why make things easy? Um, it was trying to work out the place to start it and to write it in a way that was obviously um, logical and accessible for the readership, but also having a little bit of, so I suppose, word fun with it as well. And um, and I was trying to also think about all those things, as I say, that were very, very London and what's more London than, than a pigeon. So there have been other beginnings. That's about the fourth or fifth beginning that I started. So I thought set the scene with a pigeon and just have a little bit of intrigue there. And then after that, in the prologue, it goes on setting up the scenes of the four elementals, the chads, the water spirits, the fumis, the air spirits, the... Um, dragons the fire spirits and the magogs the earth spirits so that's there as well so we kind of get the full scene of it yeah I think maybe let's go to the elements first of all because this is a London steeped in uh fantasy but a kind of well an elemental and earthy uh fantasy uh tell us about those creatures and how they came to be part of this story were they there right from the beginning I think I was very inspired by uh, Belleronovich's Rivers of London. And if anybody hasn't read it, it's sort of uh, a book, very contemporary. It's basically, basically a police procedural set in a London where it has got this magical element. And Mother Thames, you, you know, used to be a Nigerian nurse and all this sort of river spirits are actually either Nigerian party girls or sort of like fixes in Parliament. And I just love that idea of, of London. So that was kind of my starting base with the Chad's the River Spirit who can... Um, change, sort of shape-shifting, but they take their shape depending on where they are. So there's a rather fierce boar who's like with the spirit of a fleet, um, the fleet ditch, because historically a boar had been found rather well fed <laughs> in fleet ditch. Um, and then the sort of Westbourne um, uh, Tyburn River, who's a mix sort of like uh, a nun because he used to be a convent and a ballad singer because of like the Tyburn gallows and so again that was because I'm very nerdy as well it meant I looked at a lot of history so that was great mm-hmm. fun to play with and the main character one of the main characters Marisi her grandmother is a keeper of London's wells so she's got to keep all these sort of uh, river spirits happy as there's more muck and dirt being thrown into London's rivers with industrialization. Mm-hmm. And you've got the Fumis, the air spirits, and again, they are not happy. They've got all this sort of, you know, the breweries and the tanneries and the tallow makers, like pumping all that smoke into the air. So they kind of hang around the belfries and uh, their first language is, is um, weather vane as well. So they tend to speak human English with a bit of a screech to it. Um, the dragons, and it's trying to think of something different with dragons as well. So I actually Googled what animals can withstand extremes of, of temperature and up pop these sort of tidigrades, which are kind of like minute, strange looking creatures. So I thought, what if they were really the dragons, but they can shape and reform and uh, become a dragon? So again, that was great fun. And because dragons like wealth, they hang out in the city of London and they're great mates with all the guildmasters because it's all about money generation. And there's one living in a cellar of the Lord Mayor of London's mansion, because why not? <laughs> and finally, Magogs are kind of earthbound and nobody's quite sure who they are. So the rumour is that the two giants are sleeping on a um, bed of the Thames River, but they've got eyes all over London. So the statues look out for them. And in the second book, there's shard beasts who are like made of glass and they're like the henchmen of the, of the sort of um, the Magogs. So they're watching and waiting. And by the fourth book, they will have their moments. I could see the naming. I mean, I, I I love the naming of Gog and Magog. You know, you've got the Gog Magog Hills and 
obviously their story stretches way back into biblical times and I could get the fumi and where that was coming from. I was interested in chads and where the naming of the chads came from for the water spirits. It was a St. Chad, I think, and he was one of the sort of patron saints of water or wells or something like that. So they celebrate St. Chad's Day. It was actually St. Chad's Well over by King's Cross as well. So you can still sort of see the street name there as well. So I wanted something not too obvious, but it also gave like, um, you know, the well keeper, they would celebrate stuff on St. Chad's Day as well uh, to sort of celebrate oh, the wells. Yeah, of course. So keeping London healthy is partly about keeping these spirits in balance and they're not in balance at the moment and uh they're going to be a couple of solids <laughs> human characters uh, that are going to go on this fantasy mystery quest to help to re-establish or rebalance things uh maybe we ought to start with marisi uh, first of all blackwell and her grandmother now i believe that's also based on a historical character because in London was there not a place called St Mary's or Black Mary's Well? It was actually yeah, Black Mary's Well or Black Mary's Hole, and actually again, it's one of those things I found by accident when I was like hanging out with Catherine Johnson and other writer, and she showed me this A to Z of George in London, and because I'm obviously pure geek, I said, like, "Oh, one day what's still there and what's there?" And there's like a place called uh, Black Mary's Hole, and I thought. Mm, or who Black Mary was. Nobody quite knows, but there is one of the rumour that there was a Black woman called Mary who actually was a well-keeper. So I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was actually my starting place with, with her because it was like it was like a gift, really. <laughs> and so, yeah, she looked after the well and I thought, yeah, but what if she looked after all of London wells? And also, again, there's something for me, again, quite powerful about, you know, which Catherine Johnson has been so fantastic at, about putting people of colour back into London's history and um, because we're most definitely there and sometimes given us more agency than quite often we have in stories. So I thought, yes, um, Madam Mary Blackwell is a person who has to keep all these spirits and petition to them to the Lord Mayor of London. And so she's got quite a good, you know, strong role in this. Mm. Um, she disappears fairly early on in the story. Um, and so her granddaughter is the one that is left to... Um, find out what's going on and there's a a threat of freedom being taken away Um, and the dreaming that we heard about in your prologue ties in with that and these two things are seen as antagonists of each other if you like the dreaming and the freedom Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about that Um, I mean this is a a little bit bit geeky but um I was thinking about the hierarchy of needs and about what we need to be human. And at the very basis of that, there is food, um, shelter, you know, water, those very basic needs. So what happens if you can't get them or what happens if you can get them somewhere else? And as you go up, you know, there's like, you know, your sort of social interactions and friendships and, and all of these. So I kind of use that to think if we take those away, what happens and what happens if you get them somewhere else? And so there was idea about the either London ether, it's the place where if you're poor, um, you have such vivid dreams that they feel like that they're real. So if you go to sleep hungry, you dream that you've got all this amazing food and you almost feel fulfilled. And then you can go back into London, be poor again, do, do what you have to do. And then you dream again. And the same if you're cold, you know, you can have the most amazing clothes, you can be warm. And then you go back into, into sort of London and have to deal with what you did. 
But what happens if in those dreams, because obviously, you know, in Georgia, London, mortality rate was so high anyway, that you see that person that died who you loved, but it's not like a dream. It feels so real. And that dream, you could be with them always. Would you take that choice? And that's what these sort of, I suppose, the antagonist, the villain, the shepherdess is playing on. Actually, why be poor and hungry and, you know, and cold and lonely in this world where you could have everything you need in, in dreams? Let's go to the other character in the story, which is Robert Strong. Now, Robert, um, we know that his background has been one of being sold into slavery. And what's really interesting in his story um, is that we get glimpses of that previous life in Barbados, but also echoes of, you know, his African heritage, for instance, when they visit the water spirits it's Mami Wata from the West African uh, tradition that he remembers so he's a really um, really interesting character again if you tell us a little bit about him from from your perspective so in a sense he was my starting point because uh, quite a few years ago I was commissioned to write and deliver a black history walk for um, East London sort of Shoreditch Haggerston in, in Hackney and there's a big church there, you know, the, the rhyme, you know, um, oranges and lemons is the bells of Clem, when will I go, which are the bells of Shoreditch. So that big church in, in sort of uh, Shoreditch, St. Leonard's Church, was where an enslaved young man called Jonathan Strong was baptised. And he had been brought over from Barbados with some very brutal so-called owners who had abused him so much that he was left for dead in the street. He made his way to a clinic where Granville Sharp and his brother helped him, paid for his hospital bills in Bart, who's there for a month, and found him a, a job uh, with an apothecary where he was spotted by his own old owner who sold him on and kidnapped him. He was about to be sent back to, to sort of uh, the plantations and he was found by the Sharps who eventually got into the abolition movement. And I'd never known about him. So for years, I've been thinking about how can I put him in a story? And so I wanted to make him a detective, but actually it didn't quite work with his age. He was slightly too old. So that's why I made him Robert Strong, to have that voice of those, you know, enslaved teenagers and children who have been pushed to the sides of, you know, British history. So I kind of wanted to bring that into it, but try and do it in a way that, again, didn't make any black children reading it. Or white children reading it, think that all black people were in the UK were slaves. So to give him that humanity, so it was really, really important to me. Yeah. Because uh, you've mentioned Catherine Johnson and, of course, another writer who did a lot in this area uh, was Steve Martin, S.I. Martin, whose books, um, Jupiter Williams, showed that black people lived many different kinds of lives um, and a lot of them have just been forgotten. So he also did a great job of bringing that to our attention. He did. And unfortunately, it just didn't. I mean, I only knew about this, what he'd written when I met him, actually, funny enough, at Catherine Johnson's lunch. I think it's a Lady Caribou, actually. <laughs> and so it didn't, you know, there was not enough distribution. There was not enough publicity mm. and marketing by, by publishers. So I think, you know, often seen these books as niche books. And I think these are the books I longed to have read when I was a child mm. to actually feel, you know, I didn't write a black character until I was in my 30s wow. because I'd so internalised, you know, the, the idea that people that looked like me didn't belong in books and probably didn't write them because every book I read as a child was somebody who's white and dead and I was not likely to be either. So, but it's actually such a strong internalisation that it took until my 30s 
and seeing uh, Mallory Blackman's pickup boy and thinking, oh, it's a UK black family as well, not American. So, you know, so I really wish, you know, books by, you know, S.I. Martin and others had just come through when I was much younger and that like, the publishers had just promoted them and put so much power behind them. So they went further. Mm. Can I just ask you, just as an aside, really, do you feel that tide has turned? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I mean, publishers are businesses, so um, they will, you know, publish what they think will sell. I don't think in terms of children's publishing, a demographic is necessarily reflective of the community that's reading it. Because, you know, if you look at the last two censuses, the sort of uh, so-called minority population are very young. So you've got those. And all, all young people, regardless of their ethnicity, are very global these days you know if you look at the following of k-pop or manga or anime or all sorts of things you know even access to netflix they have much wider points of reference i think they're much more open to all types of books um i think what's fantastic now is the um independent publishers you know whether it's nightsoft or guppy or you know who do really interesting books so um, you know the bigger publishers not sure but the independent publishers and also I think a lot of younger people, maybe older people, are finding their own ways to market, to create their own readership, sort of audiences, to hold on to their own creativity. And I just think that's incredibly exciting. Mm. I do just want to mention, uh, heads up to uh, those publishers that you've mentioned, but I should mention that your book is published by Scholastic. Um, and we're really pleased that they brought that yeah. to, to light because it's a great story. Now, as you've been talking, <laughs> I can't get away from the fact that you clearly love history and London history. And you took me everywhere in this book, you know, northwest, south, all central London, uh, but just about every place. I went to Hyde Park. I went to the Founding Museum. I went to Tyburn. Uh, yes. Where did that all, where was that sparked for you, that interest? My mother... <laughs> I mean, my mother came from Trinidad. She's sort of brought up into colonial Trinidad. So she did O-levels and she always loved history. And she was the only one, she was the second youngest of 12, but the only one who came to England to train to be a nurse. And so when I grew up, my mum's a massive reader, absolutely massive reader. So she loved reading historical novels. We loved watching them on TV together. And then when she learned to drive, you know, and there's not a priest hole in Sussex, Hampshire, Kent that we've not visited because she loves Tudor history, went to every stately home, castle. So it came from there. And I think you just absorb it. You know, I did history, I leveled it quite well. And for me, history, it's a strange thing because growing up, there was never black people in history unless there was a mention of slavery, but then it was all William Wilberforce all solved it. So for me, history is actually more stories. And then when I moved to London in my mid to late 20s, I found London quite difficult as I came from Sussex. And um, so I spent a lot of time on buses trying to connect it. And I was in Blackheath, you know, near Deptford and Greenwich and all that history that's around there as well. And um, I suppose during lockdown, first lockdown, I had a grant from the Society of Authors towards this book. So I just bought this massive stack of quite often secondhand books all about Georgian London. Reread like Peter Ackroyd's sort of London, the biography. We listened to all the Rivers of London books on, on uh, Audible uh, and just read and read. And we ought to talk a bit about the, the story and it's it's a very complex plot. That must have taken quite a while to pull all of those threads together. 
Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the, the final version is about the 13th or 14th version. So Lauren Fortune is this uh, editor commissioned it, and she was so fantastic um, because she kind of nudged me, but entrusted me to do it. But we, we had quite a few different nudges. So the structural edit, which is kind of the first edit you get, we were trying to, to get the story straight. We did quite a few of those because I think we did things in layers. So originally the version, um, Marisi and Robert already knew each other, but it suggested it actually be good to build their relationship from the beginning. So we had to rewrite thinking about how, how that happened. Um, and then to make it more of a detective story. So they went from clue to clue to clue. So that took a while, but once you got that, it kind of made it quite coherent. But instead of trying to add, I suppose, a bit of fun and a bit of originality to each time you found a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, so also sometimes Lauren said uh, at the beginning, a bit sedate Patrice. I thought, right. <laughs> The game is on. <laughs> um, so, you know, put the plague monster, you know, in the serpentine in Hyde Park. So there's a bit of a discussion about whether it's too scary or not. You need to meet more 10-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, there are some dark and very exciting points, but they need to be to keep the readers Absolutely. turning. I mean, for yeah. me, one of the things is when they're in the well and the waters are rising. I mean, I find, I think because I... I have panics about that kind of thing. Me too. You know, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I can't really swim. Um, I sort of, yeah, I thought of, you know, going into and even to a pool, I'm not being able to touch the, you know, it's it just it fills me with absolute panic, you know. So, you know, draw my own panic for that, I think. Mm. So yeah, it was, it just, you know, took a while. So it's basically finding the clues to why London is under the sleep, but also the character, the shepherdess, who she is. So she's a character who is created a sleep and she's angry and finding out well why. And um and I kind of I suppose in a sense, you know, George London obviously was this place where there was a lot of really profound poverty where people were were sort of executed just for stealing something to allow them to stay alive, you know, a silver spoon or something like that. And I kind of didn't want to not you know, mention that it wasn't a fantasy world, it was harshness as well. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I'm also interested in the sort of complexities of villains. And I know you could go, you know, full on villain and whatever, but I find it quite boring. And I think it's something about why do people do what they do, even if they're a fantasy character. So I just lot of think about, you know, what is it that makes people do bad things? And a lot of it is because you care for somebody else who's been hurt. And mm-hmm. so kind of went back to that to think about that. Mm-hmm. And I guess another thing that perhaps might have cropped up in the editing process is there was so much here you didn't have to get it all in because you have got some more books coming so you can presumably include some of this in further stories yes um and also the thing is you know it's a balance isn't it you don't want to be a cheat where people read it all it's like you have to see the next book next year it's like oh I hate that you know <laughs> it's like a big difference between that like, I don't know um the, uh, the Infinity Stones and Endgames. We had to wait for the second half so long, you know. Um, but yes, I think obviously it's, it's a first book. There's a lot of world building in there as well, relationship building and all of those things. So it kind of has to do so much work. And mm-hmm. I think with the next books, hope you know that's already there and you can sort of hit the ground running a little mm-hmm. bit more. You know who everybody is and what the relationship, but also try and create a standalone story. Uh, can I just ask you because it's su- it's such a departure from your uh, previous novels that we know so well and of course no writer should be uh, pigeonholed into writing just one kind of thing uh, but has there been anything uh, that has come out from this experience of writing this book for this age group that has been different for you and that you've you've learned from as a writer? I 
think the most thing is trying to get the tone right. You know, with, with, with the YAs, I tend to do very close first person or very close third person. So you're very much in the head of the, of the characters, whereas as a middle grade, you can pan out a bit to do that description. It was actually quite liberating. And I think it was that balance between, you know, how gory can I go? Because the, so the age group is like nine to 12, it's such a massive gap, isn't it, between being nine and 12? So I was kind of thinking about the 10 to 13 year olds and I did some school events in June and I was kind of talking about it sort of on some year sevens and eights, like, oh my gosh, yeah, you know, keep, 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 the, you know, keep the plague monster. Keep the so I suppose it's just a nine year old. So I kind of went to the slightly, you know, I think. And also I suppose the other thing is when you're that young, is if you don't, you read something you don't like, you just flick over the page. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. It feels safer than some things, doesn't it? So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's quite a bit in Elemental Detectives about memory. At one point, Robert says that his, I think it was his mother who told him not to forget people from his past. And that leads us on to thinking a little bit about a new book, I think, that you've coming got coming out with Magic Cat, because that's all about recalling heritage. And I'd love to know a little bit more about that story. Yes, it's a picture book called um, Our Story Starts in Africa. And it was one of those challenges where uh, the editor who asked me to do it, Emma Roberts, was the editor who acquired my first three YAs. Got her to thank for, for, for my writing career. And she's sort of working freelance and working for Magic Cat. And said, you know, they might like to write a book. You'd write a book about the history of Africa in, oh, about 800 words to four to six year olds. <laughs> Yeah, the mission is yours if you choose like yeah because oh, Emma's a nerd like me as well it's like actually an opportunity to read and read and read and a chance to challenge the perception of what Africa is so you know people just see Africa as as this place as opposed to a continent of many 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 different countries and I used to work years ago um looking at equality in early years and in their policy and you know we know there's utter research that shows that young children develop their their biases and prejudice at a very early age because you just absorb what's in the world around you so the way to change that is to get <laughs> get in when they're young so it was yes it was, so it's a book that's set in Trinidad because that's my background and draws the first time I went to Trinidad you know from Sussex very white to Trinidad full of all his family thinking you really fit in and actually nobody could understand a word that I said and I can understand my family's you know Trinidadian accents and it's like oh <laughs> so that's what happens a little girl Paloma goes but her great auntie her tante Janet says actually we are all part of this family be proud of all African and she talks about the African about you know about the first modern humans you know, we're in Africa and all about the, the original empires and the money they had and the resources and the wealth and the frankincense and the European intervention, all age appropriate, you know, mm. um, the scramble for Africa, enslavement, but also what Africa is now, you know, science and technology. So it's going to be published. It's the first book that I've ever had that's going to be published in the US as well by Abrams, which is which is fantastic. And the illustrator is um, Janetta Gonzalez. And poor Janetta, it was her first ever picture book. So suddenly she's got to do scenes set in Trinidad and scenes set in ancient Ethiopia. <laughs> and she's done it very beautifully. Yeah. Well, it looks like we've got a lot to look forward to. So at least three more elemental detective books after the publication of the first one. And your new book, which is yeah. Our Story Starts in Africa. And some more YA maybe as well in the future. I'm not sure. I mean, it's mainly because my daughter did this really awful thing and grow up. So <laughs> I can't like steal her stories anymore. <laughs> I think it's, I think, you know, 
I might have said all I wanted to say. There's a lot I want to say, but I think you can just you can say it in different media. So you can say it in picture books, you can say it in middle grade. Um, and I think for me, it's been great fun exploring those different methods of saying what I want to say. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Patrice. Um, I hope I can welcome you back into the reading corner in the future. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Scholastic Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.